0: Hey everyone, it's Joel. Welcome back for another episode. In this episode, I continue my conversation with philosopher Naomi Zack about her view that identity politics does not belong in the government. To give you some context, in the ethics class that I taught recently, my students spent a couple weeks thinking about justice and social change. We reflected on questions related to the ethics of protest, related to moral suasion, and identity politics so the conversation about identity politics was really really fascinating and my students had a lot of thoughts and questions about naomi's particular argument so i decided to reach out to her and see if she would be interested in responding to some of the questions and objections my students raised toward her view and she was immensely kind and gracious and decided to join us for a podcast discussion about those questions So this is part two of that discussion. If you're interested in more reflection on the argument, I actually have an episode where I discuss her argument in more detail, but a lot of the content will come up in what follows. So subscribe, follow, and share, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. One argument that we were particularly interested in as a class is this pushback argument that identity politics in the government invites identity pushback identity non-compliance and you just have chaos one of the things that my students argued about this point was that they they wondered whether the alternative did any better So one of my students um, thought that there maybe was a hidden premise in the argument, namely that universal policy does not draw pushback. And this student objected, arguing that universal policy is open to legislative and sociopolitical disruption as well. And they cite this example. Think of President Trump and Republicans uh, repealing parts of Obamacare. And I guess you can add to that, you know, I'm thinking about how the united states in general has had a kind of vexed relationship with universal policies so the overturning of welfare in the clinton administration in 1996 clinton said we're going to we're going to reform welfare as we know it and he sort of gutted welfare and i mean welfare right. was this universal policy meant to help really anyone and so a lot of my students just wondered whether universal policy which seems to be the alternative to more targeted policy whether that faces any better chance Of sticking around.
1: Okay, well, I think it does. I mean, take Obamacare. So there was tremendous outrage, and I think scores of attempts were made in Congress to repeal the Affordable Care Act. None of them, none of them really, none of them succeeded. And the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, is now more popular than ever. Now. Here is a problem. Here is a real problem that we have. Well, the the way the universal policies work is they not only benefit minorities, they also benefit usually larger numbers of white people. So 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 Biden's Jobs Act accomplished that. You know, the money, the money goes out to everybody. Um, Now, here's the problem with this. In, in this era of, I'd say, racialized identity politics, there are, there are, and you see this in West Virginia through uh, Senator Joe Manchin's uh, political views, there are large numbers of white people who could desperately use a little bit more assistance in, in terms of a safety net. But they seem to be aware that no matter how badly off they are, there are people of color who are even worse off. So it's it's very spiteful. So sort of out of spite, they will not support policies that, that will benefit them if they feel that the people that they look down on will also benefit, or maybe even benefit more. This is a real problem. Um, because In a way, you have to assume that the electorate is self-interested. So so if you craft a universal enough policy, um, even though people who are better off will benefit in greater numbers, it'll probably help people who are not as well off more you have to overcome the spike factor. And in some cases, it has been overcome. It's been overcome with the Affordable Care Act. It's also been overcome with Social Security. Everybody gets Social Security. If you're a billionaire, you're still going to get Social Security. But you don't find rich people lobbying against Social Security, at least not strongly, because they, they believe that poor people or people who are undeserving Are going to benefit more than they do. In other words, the Social Security check doesn't mean that as much to a rich person as it does to someone for whom it's their entire income, right? So, so I think there's an art and a skill to crafting, um, and you have to have the agreement of the majority, and the majority uh, is is white. It's certainly not. I mean, it's creeping up and this creates a lot of anxiety, but for the most part, the majority um, is a white racial majority. And for the most part, politics have become at least subtly racist in terms of their uh, pushback motivations. An example was affirmative action, right? Affirmative action was a very specifically targeted policy, but almost immediately, The pushback was well this is reverse discrimination and and the way that the court the u.s supreme court has been hollowing out affirmative action has been by them based on an idea that any consideration of race which gives someone an advantage is invidious so they don't take into account well wait a second affirmative action was supposed to correct uh differences and opportunities because of anti-non-white racism, because of past invidious uses of racism, they, they won't even look at that. They, they just say, well, anything that you do now, if you use race in any way, if you, you show preference for any racial group, that violates the Constitution, the Civil Rights Act, whatever. You know, race is invidious. Um so it would be very interesting to see what happens in in there's a Harvard case and the North Carolina case and both cases are are backed by a long term opponent of affirmative action. But what's happened it really is institutions of higher education got the message in two thousand and three when the decision was made on two Michigan cases, uh, Gruder and Gratz, and in Graz, uh, the undergraduate program was giving people points for race, and, and basically the court said they couldn't do that. But the court liked the law school program, because the law school program said that holistic if you look at each candidate holistically, and and you just consider race as one factor among other factors, that's okay, because... According to, to uh, strict scrutiny, the government has has a um, an interest in a diverse society. Uh, now, the diverse society. and Day O'Connor uh, wrote the the the, the majority uh, ruling on this, and the diverse society. In college or in law school is important because that's where people that's where the next group of leaders are trained. So what you have there is not affirmation of people who were previously excluded or something positive to pull them in. What you have is a look at the whole unit and wanting to make sure the whole unit is diverse because that's where the leaders are being trained, but what's left out of that is in most of these units uh white people are dominant so it kind of looks like it kind of reads like well we want diversity on college campuses because the next group of leaders who will be predominantly white will then have some experience with people of color and they'll be in a better situation to run their companies or their banks or whatever so and then diversity has become the buzzword instead of affirmative action although most people consider diversity to be part of affirmative action it's really not that it's really something entirely different because the focus is no longer targeted on minority groups the the target is the combination of minority groups plus the white majority i mean i'm I'm not saying that universalism is easy but i i don't think in the present political climate that targeted programs really have a chance of getting off the ground.
0: You know, you've you've mentioned different forms of pushback that have arisen um, in the history of social progress, and this connects with a question that some of my students have been asking. So one student says, historically, every time we've made progress in the U.S., it's come with pushback. They mentioned the Revolutionary War, the Civil Rights Movement, women's suffrage, gay rights. Um, all these things had pushbacks, and it seems like that's an inevitable, inevitable part of moving forward, they say. And so what I think this student is getting at is something like this. We've seen pushback in the past, and it did not necessarily undermine long-term progress. So can't we expect the same going forward, namely that there will be pushback if we have race targeted or group targeted interventions on injustice but that the pushback won't have the final word. So I wonder how you would respond to that student's point about well, pushback sort I, of always Yeah, good.
1: it's an interesting perspective. Um it's kind of like saying, look, you know, people make mistakes, um but that doesn't mean they're redeemable and we have to accept the fact that people are going to make mistakes, right? And they can still succeed. You know they can still be good people. Well, that doesn't mean that you try to make mistakes. You know what I'm saying? So, so if you're aware of certain kinds of pushback, you know you have it, maybe you can prepare for them and stop them. But you can't just say, "Well, we're going to do this, and we're hoping for this. We're hoping to realize this ideal." And of course, there will be pushback, and then we'll wait, and then things will go forward. I mean, it seems to me that's very passive. So, so there's a difference between saying, "Well, there will be pushback. What kind of pushback are we going to get, and and how we can deal with it?" That's preparation, right? That in a disaster mode, that is just that's preparation. There are going to be storms there are going to be more pandemics well we have we, we're in a situation where without them we can prepare so it's fine to prepare for pushback i would say preparing for pushback is is a a positive way of acknowledging that there will be pushback but the danger is that any one type of pushback might go on for 50 years you know, and and I, you know, I'm a philosopher, but I can't. I really can't be philosophical about that. I mean, you know, the 50 years is two generations, right? You can't just oh well, we're at a stage of pushback. Nothing we can do. It's always like this. It's gonna. It'll move forward again. No, I mean, when real pushback happens, it's a so it's a social uh, calamity. So after um, Reconstruction, you had Jim Crow. Jim Crow is a tremendous pushback against the emancipation of slaves and against reconstruction that actually established some equality throughout the country, right? Jim Crow lasted for, um, I think, 70 years. So, I mean, you can't, you know, you, you can't, be passive and you know philosophical in the sense of well it's no big deal in considering pushback i mean i think pushback has to be taken very seriously um and if you think you can prepare for it that's fine but 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 you know the best form of preparation um and i also work on disaster the best form of preparation is avoidance so if you can avoid The calamity right then then you don't have to elaborately prepare for it you see i mean if if good news look um you 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 might have you may have high cholesterol which could lead to strokes and heart attacks and so on and so forth so one thing you might want to do if you have high cholesterol is make sure you have medical insurance so that's a way of preparing for the consequences of high cholesterol. But on the other hand, there's a fair amount known about high cholesterol that it can be brought down by certain dietary and exercise changes. So, so that's a form of avoiding the consequences of something. It's fine to, if you can avoid some. You know, it's good to be to avoid something that's really very bad instead of preparing in such a way as to survive it, you know, maybe you can just sidestep the whole thing.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It, this issue comes up in your book and I would just, I just want to read a quote for the listeners because it really highlights what you're saying, this value that you're putting on permanence Um, and not just putting up with the two steps forward, one step back, or sometimes one step forward, two steps back, but trying to be creative and imaginative about Solutions that don't have or trigger as much pushback. So in your book, Progressive Anonymity, you say something is wrong with a movement or system of progress that cannot anticipate and avoid regress. And you say the resulting progressivism by and on behalf of racial minorities needs to be inclusive in ways that will forestall regress so that those who want to go back will be deterred by having too much to lose. So it gives us a lot to think about there. One other issue that my students were really vexed by that came up in class discussions was your conception of the purpose of government. I think this might've been one of the most important forms of pushback, speaking of pushback, in, in the class discussions. And I'll just you know read some of the comments that came up in their questions for you. Um, one student said that quote unquote, solving problems oversimplifies the government's purpose and its responsibility to uphold justice. Um, Another student said that the government's purpose is to solve problems and injustices for all its citizens. Targeted policy focuses on solving these injustices most effectively and directly, whereas universal policy arguably is less effective. And so this really leads to a question that um, one of my students wants, he's curious to know what you think. How would you include the maintenance of justice and equal treatment And your definition of the purpose of government, where does justice and equality fall in your view of the government's Uh, responsibility? So
1: so if by justice, let's say by justice, you mean racial justice, right? Is that what we might consider?
0: I think so. I mean, I think they want to throw like a big tent conception of justice, justice for yeah, different groups.
1: Okay, so you have the Civil Rights Act. um, Of. um, the non-discrimination, the whole package of civil rights legislation, sixty-four to through sixty-eight. The but the the key act, which shouldn't have been necessary because it was already written into law at different times um, after the um, uh, uh, stipulating equal protection under the law um, in the Fourteenth Amendment, and also there was various legislation after the civil war but it became necessary to have a civil rights act civil rights act outlaws discrimination based on race also or ethnicity or religion or or gender um now we've never really followed a policy of outlawing discrimination based on race we've never really. Come up with ways of detecting discrimination and addressing it instead very quickly because it was even well yeah it was even before the civil rights legislation when a uh, president kennedy had an executive order uh, uh stipulating that affirmative action needed to be taken to include uh minorities uh as as employees by government, government contractors. And then Johnson took this up as well. And then you also had the Non-Discrimination Civil Rights Act. And then it was thought that discrimination cases took too long to go through the courts. And you could always give a reason for why your exclusion wasn't a form of discrimination, the candidate wasn't as qualified, or you know, they could always give some other reason. So affirmative action. Arose. affirmative action was supposed to cut the Gordian knot of making it difficult to address discrimination. So I mean I think you know what's wrong what's wrong with non-discrimination? What is wrong with uh, Brown versus the Board of Education when the Supreme Court realizes that segregated schools are harmful uh, to to non-white children? And we now have more segregated schools, you know, um, not quite a century, 75 years later, we have more and more segregated schools or as many uh, segregated schools as we had in the 1970s. So in other words, I I think there isn't enough thought Given to often some very good principles for correcting injustice, somehow they seem too hard, and so we're going to leap to to something else. Well, they couldn't correct the reason segregation segregation in housing is against the law, but the reason that, that because discrimination in housing is against the law, but the reason schools are still segregated is schools are largely funded by revenue from property taxes. And, and uh, white middle-class neighborhoods have higher property values, more property taxes, more resources. There's also uh, one of the things they tried to stop school segregation was busing, you know, and that was huge, huge, huge pushback against busing. well, I'm not sure that other countries have this problem with segregated housing and segregated schools that we do. But I don't think there's been um, a consistent attempt to, to just to make sure that schools are integrated. Um, you know, I don't think there's been a consistent attempt to to specify what discrimination is and and to seriously... And expeditiously punish discrimination. So, I mean, the problem with a lot of these targeted um solutions to social injustice is they're kind of flashy, they're very gratifying for the side that gets it, but those very things make them vulnerable to pushback. And there is agreement and settled law on um ways of dealing with social injustice and that seems to be totally forgotten and then the dispute is well should we have school bussing should we not have school bussing should we have um should we have free choice uh in pregnancy or are we going to be consistently pro life you know that's like a very live dispute but what really uh needs more interrogation is well, what kind of an issue is pregnancy? Is it a public health issue? Is it a religious issue? Is it a political? You know what I'm saying? In other words, I think I think a big part of the problem is a lack of careful thought about the issues that are being objected to.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. And I, I guess I wonder if there is like still a problem like so so i i kind of think what my students are getting at is that if the purpose of the government isn't merely to solve problems it's also in addition to that something like to promote justice and equality that i think they think that therefore targeted interventions have more justification going for them than we think because targeted interventions might be more just more conducive to equality and And I guess what I hear you saying is like, look, the government might have a responsibility to promote justice, but you still face the pushback problem. You still face this problem of of having inadequate support for justice. And um, Okay,
1: look, let me just say laws against discrimination are a very strong example of the government promoting justice, but the government did not follow through. Right. legislation with appropriate public policy that would prevent discrimination and it still hasn't so so targeted interventions are end runs against the failure of government to follow through on mandates it already has It, it crops up too fast right and and it doesn't really solve the underlying problem because the underlying problem has not been understood I mean um, why does it take ten years for an anti-discrimination suit to work its way through the courts yes. right
0: yeah
1: I mean that's the problem, right The problem is discrimination. The problem is school segregation, right, right. So I think there's insufficient understanding of the problem and a rush for solutions that that are not going to work because they're they're not um Uh, then they're not, they're not inclusive enough. Yeah. I don't know if you're convinced. You're probably not convinced.
0: No, I I think it's such a, it's, I think it's a tricky issue. Um, I, here's what I am. I think you're convincing me of is that even if the government has a responsibility to promote justice, it doesn't follow that in our very non-ideal circumstances, the government's going to be effective at doing that. And so what I think I I really appreciate about your argument is that it has this pragmatic emphasis. It's like, well, we really we we want as much justice as we can get. We want as much equality as we can get. And if these targeted interventions, if these targeted pushes for justice just aren't effective, then then we need to pursue a different strategy. I mean, so I I'm, I'm not unsympathetic to the pragmatic undertones of your argument. I I am, but um, but but this leads to another question that my students are wrestling with, and it's actually one that I'm wrestling with too. Um, one of my students said this: If it seems that avoiding pushback seeds the framing of the argument to the worst people, um, I guess I take it they mean the people who are like opposed to racial equality, allowing them to dictate what's acceptable progress another student says that accepting Universal policy relies on the idea that white appeasement is more morally and pragmatically important than focusing solely on injustices and so I think the idea is something like these approaches might be yeah. pragmatic but they yeah. like they concede and grant and defer uh too much authority to white white resistance and white dominant culture okay
1: so it's not it's not moral authority look the government laws are not morality morality is not law these are two separate spheres of human projects and there's a tremendous amount that goes on in society outside of government which is perfectly legal government so far okay as long as we have our first amendment rights government can't touch it so there's education there's there's public discourse there are there are social organizations I mean, what really has to happen if you want to live in a socially just egalitarian society is you have to is enough people have to believe in a socially just egalitarian society. You know, um, there's a lot of work that has to be done within society to change people's minds. And it's a tremendous job. You know, it's it's a tremendous uphill battle. because you know, it's like it's like uh promoting good nutrition against fast food, you know. But but that's how the problem is how we are as a society. And if we can't fix how we are as a society when we have perfectly good laws, but they're just not consistently applied, then to expect the government to come in and intervene, okay, you're gonna do this and you're gonna do that. I'm not, you know, it's not just this pushback, I'm just not sure that it's that it can solve the problem. So I mean, I I think look, all the things that people want government to do can be done in society to change people's minds. You know, that's what happened with gay rights. Um uh, yeah. interestingly enough, the gay marriage act was the result of Americans' social views toward homosexual and toward uh gay and lesbian People changing. There was a change. There were a lot of famous and powerful people who realized they had gay children. They had children who were lesbians. They realized that gay people wanted the same thing that same things that heterosexual people wanted. I mean, that was actually the Marriage Act was not an intervention. The Marriage Act really came after the fact of a sea change in public attitudes it wasn't an intervention so yeah we can. if you have interventions you're going to have pushback but if if the work is done to actually change popular you know it can be done through art it can be done through debate it can be done through education there are a lot of ways that people's attitudes can change and that's what's really important you know government is like the last step you know it's you're having a fight with your neighbor, okay? Your neighbor is like a real jerk. Um, But really what you want to do is resolve the disagreement with your neighbor. You don't want to call the police. Calling the police is the last resort. You see, so in a sense, you bring government and you're calling the police. Well, you know, a lot of people are going to be very upset at that. And maybe sort of rightly so, because government doesn't really belong in these issues that have to be solved. Provided that Formally, you actually have good laws, and we do they're just, they're just not enforced.
0: Your point about changing and shifting culture, and how that can change policy and law, I think that's really, that's really important. And, and just convicting to me, like, I, I don't know if you were trying to exhort listeners, but I feel exhorted and invited to, to be a part of shaping culture towards a more just position. And, And I think your work is doing that too. I think you're helping to reshape culture. And um, before we end, you know, yeah, you're welcome. I'm, I'm thinking too, just what you said about the shifting opinions on gay marriage. I'm thinking too, about shifting opinions on reparations. And I just have to make this plug because my work is my research is on reparations, but (laughs) in the nineties, like it was over 90% of Americans opposed reparations. They thought it wasn't a good way forward. And a recent Poll some recent data coming out from the University of Massachusetts found that now it's only two thirds of Americans who oppose reparations. And when you look at things across um, age demographics, the data is even more like disparate. So the younger you are, the more in favor you are of reparations. So people in like the 18 to 28 bracket are like 50 50 split on whether reparations is a good policy. So I think we're already starting to see some cultural and attitudinal shift when it comes to the reparations issue. So for me, that makes me very excited. Looking forward to see what what future discourse, political discourse, is going to look like when it comes to the reparations debate. Yeah,
1: I'll. T- I will add one thing about my views on reparation. I th- reparations. I think the discussion is very good. You know, I think the discussion. You know, some things are are just very good things for people to talk about and think about, right? You, so you can think about the policy, the reasons for the policy. It doesn't mean you have to rush out and do it or demand it, right? The subject is is a, is a good subject for people to think about in our society.
0: Well, Naomi, Zach, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. My students, um, are, are, they're, they're very eager to hear what you have to say. Um, I'm very grateful that you came on. And, you know, one of the students left a comment for you. They said, I like your argument a lot. And maybe not everyone will like your argument, but what your argument does is it really pushes us to think about the best way forward, the best way of achieving equality and justice. And so I'm grateful for your research and I'm grateful that you came on to join us today. So thank you. My
1: pleasure. Thank you so much. And if your students have any further questions, just email me. Thank you.